Waverly Knobs Entertainment presents the Branch Out Podcast with your hosts Evan Charles Anderson and Tatiana Ivan. We discuss all the exciting facets of digital media and marketing for businesses and professionals. Our goal is to empower you so you can increase your knowledge, engagement, and brand identity. Let's get ready to branch out. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on another episode of Branch Out. This is Tatiana Ivan with Evan Charles Anderson. And today we have another special guest. Patrick Vale joins us. He is the founder of the podcast Ponder On. And it's a podcast born of the belief that the marginal, seemingly banal occurrences and decisions of everyday life are actually the most consequential. He is a New England native who has traveled to many corners of the U.S. and the world. Um, He has a background in ESL, and that's English as a Second Language Instruction. He's a Fulbright Fellow, AmeriCorps alumni, and really just a holistic community builder. So thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Those are all things you can add on to your resume, by the way. <laughs> yeah, sure. A couple of them are there, but I'll have to add. <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. You've traveled to quite a few different countries. Nicaragua, Spain, Brazil, you know, often focused on ESL education. And in your travels, as, as well as locally, you know, you strive to, to build and, and strengthen communities. So what would you say is the most challenging barrier to getting a bunch of people to work together? You know, was, is, it, is it language, is it culture, and, and how do you overcome it? Yeah, I, so I don't think really at the heart of it that the central issue is either language or culture. But I think I've always been drawn to language and culture as, as barriers that do exist to forming community. Um, so when I think about sort of what like what exists behind that, right? So what is language and, and what do culture represent that actually make us like scared to lean into working with other people? Um, I think of, of fear. I think to speak a little bit to, to my experience of human nature, I think it's it's very human. It's very natural to be afraid to be vulnerable with other people. And I think the tendency then is to look for ways to create the other, right? And this is something we all kind of know and it's something I think we actually all do. I think I do it myself. (laughs) Even being aware of it and, and trying to account for it and not do it, it seems to be pretty human to have this tendency of going about the world and trying to categorize people as you meet them rather than just allow yourself to understand that everybody is human and that actually in being human, period, we have so much more in common than, than we do have things that, that make us different from one another. But I think in accepting that and admitting that, you open yourself up, right? It, it becomes vulnerable. Then you have to admit that everybody around you, you know, in their richness with all of their good qualities and bad qualities is, is very similar to you yourself. That's scary. I think existentially, it has a lot to do with our our fear of, as humans, another tendency, I think, is to want to be in control, right? And I think so we we tend not to lean into community or we have some of that tendency to, to move away from that. And especially here in the United States, we have this tendency to be like, okay, I'm in charge. I, you know, I'm the author of my own fate. I'm independent. It seems to me, this is me speaking from, from my own perspective, that that's actually not 
true in large part that actually like the human condition is to be really interdependent you know it's it's really necessitates relying on other human beings i think that's actually what we're wired for is connection and community but we fear that right it makes us nervous to admit that we're not fully in control and we do have to rely on other people it makes us feel vulnerable and what lewis wrote about was that we all want to find what he calls an inner ring to belong to and so i think the tendency then is to say, okay, this person, maybe because of you know what language they speak, or maybe because of you know what color their skin is, or the their gender, or you know the person that they're dating, they're different from me. And it's a process of dehumanizing, right? It's a it's a it's a way of making a distinction between me and them. Um, and so I think that's sort of at the heart of what scares people about actually working together and building community and leaning into that vulnerability is, is this desire to, to be able to say, nope, nope, I'm, I'm in control because I'm afraid of opening myself up to everything that comes with humanity, right? Like the, the highs and lows of it and admitting that I have those highs and lows and the good and bad things about myself as well. I think I've always been drawn to language and culture because they're really obvious ways of creating the other. It's so easy to say, you know, that person doesn't say hello, they say another word. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's such an obvious way of creating the other. It's such an obvious barrier. And I also think culture is something that's maybe a little bit more subtle, but norms, behavioral norms are, I mean, they play a part in everything we do every day. And it's so easy to say, you know, that person <laughs> to use a really simplified example, that person wants to kiss me on the cheek when I walk into a room, you know, that's a business meeting. That's bizarre, right? <laughs> so we can dehumanize, we can make, make somebody feel other. They must be French or European, at yeah, least. Yeah. Or Brazilian. <laughs> and, um, and so I think for me, I've always been drawn to approaching those places, like getting close to those boundaries you know, where I'm bumping up against other people who speak different languages than I do. That's so exciting to me because I think it's a place where I feel very vulnerable, right? Where I'm not quite able to express myself in the way that I want if, if a language isn't my native language. But I think in those spots where you're entering into a different language, different meaning not your native one, or you're trying to understand a foreign culture and the norms that belong to it and the rituals and you're risking a lot, right? Like it's really nerve wracking and it plays with your own sense of like, oh my God, like who am I, right? Like if, if English isn't fundamentally human, then, then <laughs> what am I, right? Like and it, it's scary and it makes you feel very vulnerable and out of control. But I also think that there's, for me, I've always found anyway, there's so much to be gained there. I mean, it's so rich and the greatest experiences that I've had in my life, the most exciting and, and, and fruitful experiences that I've ever had are experiences where I have approached those barriers and confronted that fear and then found myself on the other side of it, being embraced by these people that maybe felt like the other but are actually just humans like I am. Well, it's interesting that you say to this whole idea of people wanting to be in control and I'm in charge and me, me, me. You know, I wonder, I feel like that's also more of a Western world kind of thought process. Because there's definitely places I've been where that doesn't seem to be the norm. It's more of a, a team mentality, if you will, rather than a me, me, me mentality. And I, I think that's also something that from a, a country where capitalism is a thing, that's also, 
you know, that competition of I want, I must get, I have, look at me. It doesn't help in, in building a community um, unless you're a- alongside a community of other people who have that stuff too. I agree. One thing that's always been exciting for me in exploring other cultures and, you know, having traveled a bit and lived abroad is feeling in, in I think probably every case where I've left the United States that the cultures that I've encountered understand community better, just like you've said, like those that it's a value. Um, And I think that motivates me, as you so nicely described me (laughs) at the outset, as as someone that it becomes important for me then to try and build community here at home in everything that I do, because I, I don't think we do it well in the United States. <laughs> I think I think often in the US we're very good at building these sort of like micro communities, right? But but as like a, a culture at large, our ability to understand that we are in this together, not great. <laughs> we don't do great at it, I think. D minus. <laughs> you can even see that because you know, we're we're in Boston, Massachusetts right now, and you go up to other people in Massachusetts and you go, Oh, what about what do you think of those people from New Hampshire? And there's just like this clear separation, even though we're all part of New England, you know, unless it's about the Patriots, unless we're talking about the Pats here, you know, it's not going to happen. Like, oh, those people up in New Hampshire, they're they're not like us in Massachusetts. And we have that clear separation. So we have this little microcosm in Boston and then in Massachusetts and everyone else becomes the other, as you had mentioned too, Patrick. And it's just amazing because it is very clear, right? We're very good in a community level or a neighborhood level. But get beyond that and forget about it. And it all goes out the window. And then it's like, oh, them in comparison to us instead of we. Yeah, agreed. And I think I think it's probably also worth noting that the United States might face a particular challenge in regard to this, aside from capitalism, which I think is, is super valid and at the heart of it. Um, but also we are a nation of immigrants, right? So we have this history of having, you know, constant influxes of people who are speaking different languages, who are introducing new ideas to the culture. That is our history. And so, you know, perhaps in comparison to other countries that maybe I visited or, or lived in and, and other folks have as well, maybe we face a particular challenge. But I think that means we need to rise to that, right? And and we need to acknowledge that that is the case and and lead when it comes to that. Because I think we have the potential to do it. I, I just think we need to be more intentional about it. And more united in our <clears throat> elections. Let's <Space>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bring back united into our states. Um. Well played. <laughs> Now, that, that brings up another question then, because we've talked about language, we've talked about the different cultures, and this could be very relevant also in the United States, because as you mentioned, these different communities, because we are a nation of immigrants between, you know, if you're Polish, Italian, Irish descent, anything, I mean, all these cultures have come over here. So how does language impact marketing then? So like your marketing messaging, how does that language, how, do, how does slang and colloquialisms seem to really impact people's marketing uh, based off your experiences? So I think the way I begin to wrap my head around it is thinking like holistically about language, right? So I think perhaps, um, you know, folks haven't learned as many, you know, folks in the United States have have never learned a second language or become fluent in that and and don't use a second language in their everyday lives. Um, There's a tendency to think that language is like math, 
right? Like, but there's always like, um, you can always translate something, right? Like, if you give me, you know, uh, say there's, you know, an advertisement that has a slogan, right? And it's in English, but we want to market that out to a Spanish speaking audience. So take the slogan that we have and translate it into Spanish. And I think there's this idea that exists around language. Um, that that's a simple thing to do. Like a one-to-one -one ratio, as it were. Yes. Um, and so I think th to begin to think about that, the first thing <laughs> it necessitates that you, you understand that that's false, that that's sort of a, a simplistic way of understanding language, that language is a living thing, like you've mentioned, right? There are colloquialisms, there's slang. <laughs> Technically, we define language as a set of spoken, written, or signed words and the way we combine them to communicate meaning. And those things are constantly evolving. I have trouble keeping up in English. <laughs> I'm trying to use new words all the time that the youth are coming up with. Oh, yes. <laughs> my, my younger sister keeps using the word lit. The boat. Fuck a bitch. Fuck a bitch. Fuck a bitch. And it's driving me nuts because when I, well, back in the day, you know, when you use lit, that means that you were, for instance, stoned, let's say. But so I'm thinking when she's saying, oh, that's lit. I'm like, who's stoned? Like, that's my first <laughs> initial reaction. And she's like, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like on fire. It's cool. It's, you know, it, whatever it is. I don't, I'm still trying to figure it out in a way. It's like on fleek. And I'm like, what happened to sick? I thought sick was cool and wonderful and on fire. Now it's lit. Oh, my God, I can't. Sick might come back <laughs> oh. at some point. <laughs> SMH. <laughs> uh, um, so, but but yes, right. So I think understanding that language is something that is it's a it's an art form more than it is a science or uh, something formulaic, right? And it's living and breathing and dynamic. It also interacts in a deep and meaningful way with culture, broadly speaking, right? So language is influenced by and reflects politics. Language is influenced by and reflects religion, right? It's influenced by and reflects all sorts of societal norms. And, and so it's something super dynamic and it's tied to history. And it's, I mean, it's learning a language is not the same thing as learning formulas, right? And, and so I think if we think about how to market effectively, which it seems to me anyway, that effective marketing isn't just about conveying a message explicitly, right? So it's not just taking, um, you know, a fact and transferring that fact out to the masses, right? Effective marketing seems to me, certainly the marketing that I can think of that's been effective on me is marketing that hits you at a gut level, right? It's something that's visceral, um, that you connect with, that's easy to see, you know, if you, you know, watch commercials in the United States or even just in particular regions of the United States, it's very easy to watch a commercial, analyze a piece of marketing and say, what values underpin that commercial, right? And, and that seems to me to be the more effective piece of reaching an audience, right? Are they talking about, are they associating a car with freedom? Are they associating a car with patriotism, right? That's something we do often in the United States. Mm -hmm. But so it seems that like, to me, the effective piece of that marketing is speaking about patriotism and not about the horse engine power, of, <laughs> right? So, so like, and that has to do with language, like that has to do with culture, it has to do with language. If you're going to market effectively to an audience that is speaking a different language, you have to understand how that language interacts in a local way with history, how it interacts with values that the culture lifts up 
that will connect with people in a visceral way. You can't take a car commercial that, you know, speaks to patriotism that exists here in the United States, translate it into Spanish, do the one for one thing, throw it down into Venezuela and expect people to give a damn about the car. <laughs> like, that's not, people are not going to have an emotional reaction. All of that is to say language is sort of the first step. Yes, can you speak a language? Can you write it if it's not your native language? But it's tied to so many things that are so much bigger, and you've got to think about those things to be effective with an international audience. And I love what you said about kind of the, you know, what hit him in the gut, basically. And we had uh, Tom Shapiro on here who talked about emotional marketing, and he gave a great example of, for instance, Apple here in the U.S. He said, you know, yeah, there was Compact and all these other computer companies that were talking about memory and RAM and the CPU and, you know, everything else. But to basically the the broad spectrum of people, it went over their head. They didn't care about that. So Apple made computers sexy, basically. You know, they, they made it so that way it's like, oh, it looks nice. And, you know, it has a certain kind of flair to it. And look at the interface, the UX and UI of our OS and uh, you know, all these other things that just made it go, ooh, and ah. It's like watching fireworks go off, basically. And that's what they did with the electronics industry. And so you could ask people, well, how fast is your phone or how much memory does it have, like your iPhone or your computer even? They wouldn't know, but they just love it because it gives them a certain feeling. And so, again, it's about understanding, as you said, that base level of what really hits them in their culture, what's important to them emotionally, and can pull them and get them pulled into you and your brand and what you do. Yeah, totally. What, what you've just said, I, I mean, I even just had an emotional reaction to what you just said, thinking <laughs> about like, um, I remember in college I had, uh, I got my first laptop when I went to undergrad and I got um, a PC. Dude, you're getting a Dell. Easy to Right, that's a term for something that's not a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it stands for personal computer, but yes. <laughs> so a Mac could be a... No, I don't right? know. Right? They don't even, they don't, they're not even in the same category. They're so special. <laughs> I had a clunky laptop. <laughs> it was not sexy. Um, and to my knowledge, it hadn't been marketed in that way. Whatever my visceral reaction to it was, I remember getting to campus. There were a lot of people who had Macs. And I felt, I don't know if shame is too strong of a word, but <laughs> there was a certain level when you go into the library of opening up your thing that's like... <laughs> You know, and you're like opening it up and it sounds like something's wheezing. And <laughs> and then you start talking to people who actually know what they're talking about in terms of like the hard facts of how the machine works. And people are like, no, the, the machine you have is actually great for X, Y, and Z. And like, it might not look great. It might not sound great, but it works. And, and, and yet I could never really like get rid of that feeling of chasing some value that was being sold to me that's related to Apple products, to, you know, getting a Mac, to whatever. And when that laptop died a couple years ago, I got a Mac. Like, I was like, now's my moment. <laughs> like, I was like, and it really felt like I was entering a cool world. And I'm somebody who, like, is, I think, aware of those things and tries to be really intentional about not being influenced. And yet I was powerless in the face of whatever that was, which, yes, something about being sleek and sexy and I think actually for me part of the value that probably drew me in the most was a sort of like intellectualism is the wrong word but like you're with it if you have a Mac right like you're on the you're on the trend you know what's going on like whatever that was sucked me in big time and I, I love my Mac <laughs> <laughs> but all I do is 
peruse the internet. <laughs> I don't need it for anything. Yeah, I remember when I actually got a, a Chromebook because their advertising, you know, it seemed like they were like Mac, but they weren't, and they looked cool and everything like that. And I remember the price point was far less. The price point was fantastic. And I remember going into uh, Best Buy, actually, and yeah, I loved all the, um, I don't remember the words that they had, but they were like, they were short and sweet, and they got to the point, and I was like, I was like sold. And I remember getting it, and I was paying at the cashier, and the guy looks at me and goes, by the way, you know you can't really do anything with that Chromebook. Like, it's literally just a browser. And I was like, wait, what? And I got home, and sure enough, you can't like save things on it. You can't, you can't use it as a laptop. It's really just a glorified tablet. Uh, to some degree, but it's a glorified Chrome tablet. Um, and again, it was great for what it was, but the advertising made me feel like I could do so much with it. Now, I felt a little like false advertising, guys, <laughs> and and so I had to, I had to return it because I needed something that could do stuff <laughs> and not just be a tablet. Speaking about kind of I don't know, it felt like misleading advertising with the words that we're using, like oh you could do so much with it. And it's like you can't do anything with it. <laughs> well, and I think <laughs> that's I a big key that. factor too, that when you're trying to sell, let's say, a product across seas, whether it's in China, India, Russia, whatever wherever it may be, language can be so important and understanding those core those cultural norms because not only can you translate something and it not make any sense whatsoever. You're saying like pink rubber baby Bubby, buggy bumpers or something. Or try crazy. translating. That's cool. What do you mean it's cold? I don't want a cold laptop. <laughs> right, exactly. But also the fact of you know if you're not pushing the right things, or you can accidentally oversell your product to them because they think it's this huge you know computer that'll turn into a transformer or something like that. But really, it's just a glorified browser, and you have to be really careful not just in your own country, but in other countries when you're trying to translate it and make it sound cool and fun. But again, you oversell it, and it's really going to hurt you in that market. Yeah, I think it, it sounds like we're talking about. So you know, if you're if you have a product and you're marketing it, there's sort of like two tracks there. One is like, what actually are the facts of this thing, right? <laughs> like, is this a tablet? Is it a lot? Like, what does it do, right? Like, what does it actually truthfully do? You know, no fake news. What is this, <laughs> right? Like, wh why would someone want to buy it? Not because of any of the values or all that other stuff that you're trying to associate with it, but actually like what purpose does it serve in lives? And then this other track of like, okay, how do we market it effectively so that we tie it to different ideas and different values that we think people desire or want to tap into in some way that's, that will draw them to, to purchase it. And I think both of those things are really relevant when we think about selling and marketing a product internationally, right? So part of it is what we've been discussing, which is that, you know, when you're marketing based on values, you need to understand the culture. You need to understand that if you're trying to attract an American audience toward, you know, this example that I already gave, but like patriotism or liberation or independence or whatever the values that you tie to it or sexiness or, so you need to understand that that might be tied to United States culture and, and what are the equivalent of those values in you know, Germany or wherever. But I think there's also the underlying question of, is this product actually relevant? Like the hard facts of this product, like are people going to use it? Do they need it? Do they want it in other cultures? Which is like harder in some ways probably to even understand from an American perspective because then you're, you're talking about economic development, right? Like if, if you're trying to sell, you know, a, a tablet in, you know, Latin America, 
are, are you going to get a lot of people in Honduras who over, maybe you tie it to certain values and people start buying it, you know, saving up money to buy it because they think, um, you know, you, you associate the tablet as you're marketing it in that region to um, prosperity, right? Or you associate it with like um, an ability to sort of advance or education maybe, right? Like, oh, you can learn things or something like that. But if people buy it and then they're like, wait, they have a Tatiana moment where they're like, this doesn't do anything that I thought it was going to do. People aren't going to continue to buy it, right? Because, and, and that is another question that comes into play, right? So we might be in a position here in the United States where our lives have become really digitized and they're really connected. And so it actually has a practical value, maybe so great that Tatiana would have thought twice about returning it because she's like, ah, oh, it doesn't do everything I wanted it to do, but it's still useful to me. Other markets around the globe are not going to be the same. The United States is unique. And I'm speaking right now to, I think mostly just like we are rich and we've got a lot of privilege in comparison to many other cultures um, around the globe. And so a lot of, if you're selling a product, it makes sense to even question whether people in different areas of the globe would find use for it in the first place. And now we, you know, we've talked about a couple different companies too, Google, Apple, and, and what have you, but what company do you feel personally, based on your travels that maybe you've seen around and they've heavily advertised in all different areas, what company do you feel is doing it well, is, is really understanding the colloquialisms, the culture, and really hitting home with their target marketing? I'll be honest and say, I can't think of a company that sells a product who fits that description. So in my time living abroad, you know, there are certain companies, right? So the 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 stereotypical example of this is McDonald's, right? That you can go anywhere on the planet and go to McDonald's, which is true. I mean, not anywhere on the planet, but you know when I was living in- A lot in of places. <laughs> a lot of places, right? So McDonald's- I mean McChicken. Dollar menu de McDonald's y sus muchas ricas opciones. I don't know the details of their history, but it, it certainly seems that McDonald's has expanded out into the globe and that they've tried to localize menus, right? So if you go to a McDonald's in Spain, it's not going to have the same menu that a McDonald's in Boston has. And so I've, I've experienced that firsthand, right? You go into like a McDonald's cafe or whatever, and you can get a croissant or things that, that are local, right? And so they've done some work, obviously, in, in trying to figure out okay, how do we make this product relevant to the people that are here? How do we make it feel like, you know, it's an American company, but it's selling things that any Spaniard would want to eat. Same thing in Brazil. When I was living in, in Rio, McDonald's was huge, right? And, and it had a menu that was very specific to Rio. I only went to McDonald's in Rio, nowhere else in Brazil. <laughs> so I think there are those examples of companies that are selling a product. Um, I think also of Starbucks. Starbucks was beginning to sort of become a thing when I was down in Rio. Hi, I'm Vivi Fonseca. I'm here at Gomes de Carvalho Store in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I want to share with you the Brazilian tradition of cafezinho. The menu, very different in Rio. The way that people drink coffee is different. Um, very different. I'm someone who drinks a lot of coffee. It took, <laughs> it took me some, some getting used to. So I think there are those companies that have managed to spread out internationally and sell a product that is more relevant to the people in different areas of, of the world, right? So there's obviously some effort that has gone on on the part of McDonald's or Starbucks or I went to a Dunkin' Donuts in Sevilla, Spain. 
Yeah, you're telling me. Were they? Were, were did they have any America like Spain runs on Duncan or something <laughs> ridiculous? Not from what I remember. <laughs> but they must be doing a decent job, right, to be able to open up a store in Sevilla, Spain, which is southern Spain. You know, we're not talking Madrid here. Um, it's not super connected to the rest of Europe. And again, it has a menu that's different. And you know, it was hopping when I was there. I don't think of those companies in my experiences living abroad as hugely successful at localizing like at a deeper level because I think from what I've observed in those cases that they're also sort of selling let me back up for a second I think in the case of McDonald's or Starbucks in Rio they were selling Americanness as well <laughs> right so I think part of like you know maybe what McDonald's is doing in in localizing to Rio is, okay, let's make a menu that makes sense to native people of this area. But there's also this widespread sentiment um, that I encountered when I was in Rio, and I think in Brazil in general, of kind of romanticizing the United States and prosperity here. And so there was that too, which makes me sort of cringe. I'm like, ugh, right? Like there's an element of people being like, I have enough money to go to McDonald's, which is expensive in Rio. It's like high end um and i can access this quick food and this is what they do in the united states because in the united states people are rich and they have access to food and they can get it very quickly and they don't need to cook it themselves so there's that element if i try and think of like what is a company that is everywhere and is fully embraced by the different cultures that i've encountered living abroad i i think of facebook which is totally different game in my mind because they're not selling and maybe you guys can help sort of talk this out but i think they're not selling a product they're selling kind of an experience or a platform and they're you don't have to pay right so so they make money but but for me if i'm you know growing up in brazil i can log on to facebook create a facebook account i don't have to give money to do that and then it's a website that allows the user a fair amount of flexibility in terms of like creating the world that they want to create. So, so Facebook doesn't really have to worry about language as much, right? Maybe they do translations of like, I don't know, I'm not on Facebook, but like homepage or whatever. <laughs> like some of that terminology is translated, but then it's the users who are driving language and content in a given area. And I think what they're selling, Facebook, is something that's actually a little bit more universal. Getting back to, I think, what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast is like they're selling something that kind of transcends cultural boundaries. Like in a way, Facebook has tapped into the human condition, right? Facebook, to me, seems to be selling connection, community, um, sharing right, of information and images. And so they're almost like, like culturally agnostic, right? <laughs> like, or, or like you as a user embed your profile and your experience on the Facebook platform with your own cultural experience, with your own linguistic background, it automatically becomes localized, right? Mm -hmm. Facebook was used extensively in Rio. I mean, an amazing amount. Everybody had a Facebook. I had to make a Facebook when I went to <laughs> like, just so that I could communicate effectively with people. Is, they, is that because somebody came up to you and they looked at you and they're like, oh, 
you don't have a Facebook? I'm not talking to you anymore. You're like, oh no, wait. <laughs> there was. It became. You can just tell. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh. no. It became. Um, it became like a an inconvenience. I would have trouble. I, I was being very. You know, I was like, I'm not gonna make a Facebook. I got rid of Facebook like three years ago, and I'm not gonna make one just because I'm here. And then within like two weeks, it was like, you make friends and that's how you connect with friends. Like sooner than you're exchanging telephone numbers, you are adding each other on Facebook and messaging each other. So it was like, I was missing out on social events because I wasn't on Facebook. Um, They're creating a reliance on the platform now because it has become kind of a catch-all. It's a place where you can share news, your personal life. It's a place where you can keep track of other people and what they're doing and what they're up to. You can message people through there and chat with them directly. Mm -hmm. So it, it basically takes away having to open up multiple apps or travel to multiple places for different people and now it's all in one location. So now all of a sudden, yeah, you become very reliant on, oh, well, do you have a Facebook? No. Oh, okay. Because not a lot of people really check their email. They get a lot of junk mail. But I feel like they can control it a little bit more, even though we're still getting advertising like crazy for fa from Facebook, because that's how they make a lot of their money. But it's it's not as, I guess, I don't want to say abrasive, but I guess in your face, though, as when we get like all that email marketing and things like that, we can still feel like we have a little bit more control in Facebook. That's because <clears throat> excuse me, the platform is sort of out there, whereas email feels very much here or a phone, you know, like you're exchanging phone numbers. Now somebody has some, something that's like very personally tied to you, whereas Facebook still feels, although it's very, um, it's very good at connecting people and giving you a presence online. It still feels like, you know, like you were saying, like I could just delete my Facebook account anytime I want to and then boom, it, it's gone. I think I, I mean, I'm just sort of having a thought right now that Facebook sells humanness so well that not having a Facebook made me feel like I didn't exist to people. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I mean, really, it was like, that was the response I get. It's like, oh, then you're not real. Like, how do I know anything about you? How do you exist if you're not a, like, they've done such a good job of like creating a world, just like you said, Evan, right? That has like so many things going on. So sort of maybe not totally what you were asking because it's not a traditional like, here's our product and we want you to buy it and use it. Um, but I think in my experience living abroad, that is what comes to mind absolutely is everybody's on Facebook. It's essential um, and it's, it's brilliant, whether it was intended to be this way or not, but brilliant in its ability to just conform to language and culture on the ground because the users are driving most of that. Um, and, and even like smaller things, you know, I noticed when I was in Rio, um, people use Facebook for uh, like getting together civically. So like I would be in, invited to events, um, lots of like, I, I was also, you know, in Rio during a pretty tumultuous political period in Brazil. So, but I would get invited to protests or like get togethers or dialogues or like all of these different things that I did, had no recollection of occurring via Facebook um, when I was using Facebook. And, and we hear other stories about that, right? Like famously, um, you know, people, Arab Spring. This year, the Arab world erupted as a generation of young people, no longer prepared to suffer in silence, rose up against the hated despots who ruled their countries. It was occurring. Famous stories, right, of like, 
Facebook being used to organize, right? So it seems to me that that whatever Facebook is doing, they've allowed users of their product to drive it in a way that makes sense for them on the ground. So that it's kind of like universal, right? It's like you have, everybody's a human here, and then everybody's a human on Facebook, and <laughs> that's it. Well, I think and even here too, when uh, somebody does say something like, oh, I deleted my Facebook account, everyone's like, oh, why? You know, sort of like it becomes this thing, not just, oh, you know, I left my hat at home. It's, it sort of becomes this, I don't have a driver's license. What? Why don't you have a driver's license? You know, it's, it's sort of a... You assume that it must have been an intentional, right. thought-out decision. Exactly. And I feel like people delete their accounts on Facebook, or at least we're, we're told this socially, I feel like, uh, for two reasons. One is, okay, I'm, I'm being inundated with, with stuff and things, and I just want to just remove myself from that. But the other one is... I'm a shady mofo and I want to do other things on <laughs> with my personal life so I can't be on Facebook because now I'm, um, you know, sort of publicly attached to certain things that I don't want to be found or I don't want to, um, I don't want other people to know what I'm doing too. So, so I know we've kind of touched on this a, a little bit um, specifically um, as well with, with McDonald's and, and Starbucks, but in terms of the same company um, that you've seen in multiple countries, multiple locations, mm-hmm. how do you think that the messaging does differ or, or how, is it, how is it even the same? You know, what kind of, what are the similarities and, and how, what are the differences, would you say? Um, so we've been talking about that a little bit to to expand upon it. You are saying that like McDonald's in Rio seem to be selling the sort of like romanticized idea of Americanness, right? And that's something that actually is like, from what I experienced, a bit of a value among a lot of people there. Is to, like that in and of itself is like aspiring to have the conditions in life where you really can just you know walk out your door and go to um, you know, go to any fast food restaurant and get decent food and have enough money to pay for it. And it's just right there. Right. And then all you have to do when you're done with it is just throw your trash away. Right. <laughs> like you're not even washing dishes. You're not <laughs> buying food at the super. Like that is romanticized and that is packaged and sold. Absolutely. Um, that was the case when I was in Rio, certainly with McDonald's. I think, um, I would, I would hang out at the Starbucks near my apartment um, when I felt a little nostalgic or when it was so hot I needed air conditioning. And, um, <laughs> and there was that element, too, that Starbucks was selling was like, this is something from the United States um, and it's convenient and it's good and it's expensive. And so that is being packaged and sold there as well as a value that people are interested in. I don't see that occurring here in the United States. I think when I think about like, how is McDonald's marketing itself here in the United States? I think honestly, so I'm a 26 year old millennial kid who grew up like in a blue collar family from like lower middle class. Um, And I have reached a point in my life where I have like, I'm in a pretty good position, I think financially, economically. Um, I don't fear for my, you know, financial stability moving forward. Um, and I think of McDonald's as like, ugh. Right? <laughs> like, like that it's it's not quality food. Um, and I think I think that way about fast food chains in general. So whatever McDonald's is marketing here in the U.S., it's not connecting with me. If they're intending to connect with me as an audience, it's not working. My 
sense is probably they don't really care if I'm buying a Big Mac, right? Like that's not what they're um, marketing toward, I would guess in the US. Um, and, and certainly growing up, I went to McDonald's a lot. And like, it was something that, that my parents were like, this is great. I think what they were tapping into was a sense of like convenience, right? Like it's cheap and it's easy. And um, so maybe there are values there, right? That you're, if you're talking to an American audience, um, you know, Americans are overworked and we're tired and we're busy. And my mom probably was like, you're damn right. I'm busy. <laughs> I got four kids. I'm working full time. I can go to McDonald's, right? Like, and, and then I don't have to do all these other things. It simplifies my life that I don't have to go to the grocery store and I don't have to cook. And there's toys. There's Happy Meals. I mean, yes. they definitely market to um, mm. families as well. Right. And um, I guess what I'm getting at is like, so in the case, talking about the same things, right? That like, don't have to go grocery shopping, don't have to cook, don't have to clean. In the US, that's like uh, like a relief, right? Like it's like a, a burden, whatever value there is like, you deserve a break, right? That's what I think of. In Rio, mm -mm. it's like, <laughs> you deserve this privilege. Like it's like, I, I, it's like a different sort of like, romanticizing of like this is like high class and yeah, it sounds nice. like mcdonald's almost becomes apple in yes. Rio, basically yes it's like, it's like toward that like oh this is sexy this is americanized mm -hmm. uh you know only the privileged can really get this whereas here it's like yeah anyone can get it this is <laughs> it doesn't matter what and yeah, it's interesting how how much of a dichotomy there is there where for us okay cheap convenient and now they're starting to push more of like oh but you know we have good quality meats that we use and you know whole potatoes from idaho or, or whatever and free wi-fi and free wi-fi <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. But yeah, Rio, it's like, it's it just, it's it's on a much higher pedestal is, yes. what, is what it sounds like. And that's that's very fascinating that still the same brand overall. I mean, it's still McDonald's, right? It's still the Golden Arches. It's still burgers and fries, typically at its core, but yet to be viewed so differently. Totally. Yeah, well, and, uh, I remember about 15, 20 years ago when I was in Romania, I heard that there was a McDonald's in my hometown that, that you know, that... Uh, came out there about a year or two before and you know i was here like i had mcdonald's down the street but there was something about even being back there that i wanted to see it and i wanted to to experience what it was like and we went there and the prices were astronomical the equivalent was about a dollar in american dollars like a dollar for a burger which was actually cheaper than here but um for romanian money it was probably like 10 maybe 15 dollars even but they had the Big Mac. I remember the the Big Mac was just plastered everywhere. And like there were some other choices. Yeah, that was like you said, kind of local. But the Big Mac was like the the thing. And everybody pretty much just bought that meal because they equated it with, oh, well, in America, they eat this. And I was like, yeah, well, all right. So I tried it and it was okay. It had sort of the same ingredients, but it wasn't it wasn't the same. And that was fascinating, too, because I remember eating it and I was like, oh, this is kind of meh, meh. But everybody else at the table was like, oh, no, this is amazing. Is, is, it, is it like you, you experience it? And I was like, oh, of course. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But it wasn't. And that was also very interesting because, right, you know, I wanted to experience it there. And once I was there, I was like, meh, whatever. But for, for everybody there, my, my entire family was enamored with it. Yeah. I think... Um one, you know, I think something that, that gives me 
a lot of hope makes me feel really good is, is something you just touched upon, Evan, about um, you can see. So maybe we think about like, or, or we've like framed this entire discussion really from the point of McDonald's, right? Like the whatever, the company. Food is universal, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, but the idea that like a company is going to tap into whatever values exist on the ground in order to sell effectively to the people. Um, but you just mentioned, right, that like maybe McDonald's, and I've totally noticed this, how could you not living in the United States? McDonald's and, and many companies are now really trying to market themselves, true or not, you know, fake news or otherwise, trying to market themselves as being, um, you know, like food just, right? Like that they're getting like, first it was like, we're getting organic. And then it was like, our you know, every chicken we kill lives until it's 90 and runs in its own field or like <laughs> what, what I think is exciting about that is it seems to me that what's happening there is actually the reverse, right? Like the culture is saying, mm, these are values we care about. So change your marketing, right? Like you see like McDonald's adjusting to fit the desires or, or the, the values that have all of a sudden popped up in the United States, right? And that gives me a lot of hope and maybe like makes me feel, you know, better about like this capitalist society we have, right? Like I, I think you can get really down about the way that big companies, you know, I was speaking earlier about sort of mocking the, you know, the Toyota whatever that shows someone saluting the flag at the end. And you're like, what? <laughs> what does that have to do with a what? You know, and it, it feels so phony and inauthentic, and yet it's captivating and influences people and drives them to spend money in certain ways. But in this system, I think the the folks who have dollars are also driving um, the way that companies have to market. And so, you know, if we get together as a society, if we come together communally and we say, look, it matters to us that our chickens each live in their own you know mansion and die happily then great then mcdonald's is going to start at least begin by trying to get us to believe that they're doing that um and then like the hope would be right like we create food systems that are more just because this we with dollars are saying like i'm not going to buy what you're selling unless you show me that these values that matter to me matter to you as well. Um, so I think that's the power maybe of community that we're not all just sort of like, you know, just sitting around like, like, you know, mindless things like buying as we're told to buy, but that actually we can drive change in that way. We have power in the economy as well. And I'm really curious too, on if they showed people in other countries, let's say they put an American commercial for McDonald's, in this case, in Rio, and they push the fact of, oh, well, our fish sandwich is straight from the ocean and gets brought here in a, you know, golden <laughs> whatever. And, you know, it has all these fanciful things and it gets treated really well. How the people in Rio would, ex would, would I guess, look at that? Because I feel like they would go, well, shouldn't it be though? Like, I mean, shouldn't it be like fresh and shouldn't it be clean and shouldn't it be of good grade and quality? And here we're like, no. <laughs> I mean, right. honestly, like most people's like instinct is like, no. And everyone else is like, well, shouldn't it be though? Like I would assume it would be. And I think too, maybe because a lot of these countries are also used to like home cooking. Like you mentioned, like they're used to going out to the grocery store, buying it, 
killing it, whatever, bringing it home, cooking it right there so they know what's going into their food. Whereas here, I have no idea what's going into those things. Right. It's such an interesting question. It's something that I thought about a lot, you know, when I was in Rio and then having traveled to other parts of the world. And and also not to make it sound like Rio, you know, is is uh, very developed and, you know, it, it is not uh, a place not to, to make it sound as if it's, you know, really just some other planet in terms of resource <laughs> and something. Not at all. But but I think it, Right. Like to your point, and, and, and it is true, like they're not as economically developed, certainly as Boston, right, which is my home city and, and what I'm used to in the United States. When I was in Rio, I often had the thought and I've had this thought living, traveling abroad, something that I find so beautiful about so many foreign cultures that people are really connected um, to their food sources and that they know how to prepare food and they know how to like there's something to me that's so novel and exciting about that it, it seems so human Japan's elementary schools have their own unique style of providing school meals everyone takes turns helping to prepare and serve lunch today these children are responsible for bringing the food and tableware from kitchen to classroom not to get too far down sort of my like spiritual worldview, but I think there's something really beautiful spiritually about like you as a human, like nourishing your body through all of the steps that it takes to nourish your body, like taking care of yourself in that way. And I think we've become disconnected in the United States from that, largely disconnected. Certainly in my experience growing up in and around Boston, um, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, I ate a lot of McDonald's growing up, right? So, So I think we have become disconnected from that process. And so I, in turn, romanticize like the way many, most cultures of the world still handle food is that you grow it yourself. You know what it means to actually grow food or feed chickens and then kill them or whatever. But but you know what that is. You know how to cook. You grow up learning those things. You know how to nourish yourself. And it's worth it to put time into that. Like efficiency as a value, throw it out the window. Who cares, right? Like let the value of true like connectivity with like your food source let that take its place spend all day sunday sitting (laughs) seriously like sitting you know in your living room and checking on the stew every you know 30 minutes like let that because that's so human and so it's interesting that you bring that up because my experience in rio in particular you know i was there for a year and um as a fulbright fellow so much of what i was doing was I was tasked with representing the United States of America. So I was working at a, a federal university there. Ufi, if anyone's listening, it's a <laughs> great university right outside Rio. Um, I was tasked with sort of like speaking to an audience of my peers, you know, people in their mid-20s who are getting bachelor's degrees who were studying English and saying like, hey, let me tell you a little bit about my home culture. What I ran into a lot was this romanticizing that I've mentioned of my experiences, basically what I would describe as romanticizing of like the very real privilege that I have being from the United States, Um, that people were like, wow, I can't believe you can just go to McDonald's and it doesn't even cost anything and you don't have to spend all day Sunday making stew with your mom. And wow, like there was that romanticizing of it. And yet I was doing the reverse, right? Like, and I've always felt that too, where I'm like, there are so many cultures around the globe 
many of which I've been lucky enough to bump up against, who are just so much more in touch with their own humanness than I think we are here. Um, I think we get disconnected from it often and food is just one example of that. So, so I romanticize this like, yes, this food is fresh and it's, you know, and you're cooking it and you're raising it or you, you're so much more connected. Um, you know, even the wealthiest of the wealthiest people in New York are still to me, like, I'm like, yeah, you're so much more connected to your food sources. And, um, and so that's really exciting. So I think really roundabout way of, of answering your question is, I think what I encountered a lot there is people were actually like, I think they would have been like, we don't care if it's fresh. That's not what's exciting to us. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're used to. Yeah. And what we're being sold is the efficiency and the like, you know, all of uh, the convenience and all of that. Um, and maybe where I'm at because of the economic privilege that I have in my life is to have gone through that of like, oh yeah, it's efficient and it's easy. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, okay, cool, That those values aren't important to me. I want to get connected to the food that I eat. It's kind of like if you look at it like an analogy of a car, whereas it sounds like they would be more into the leather interior, whereas we would be more into, well, what's the gas mileage? How long is the engine going to last, for instance? But they're like, well, no, I I, I want the, the, the really nice climate control where I can control the, the left and right. Yeah, all the features, the moonroof, the sunroof, or whatever you want to call it. And yet we're like, will it last me? Will it run? Am I going to have to invest a ton of money just in gas alone, let alone the insurance and everything else that goes into it? Yes, I think you're right. One thing, um, one of the major differences in cultural values that I noticed when I was in Rio and this sort of like filtered into every piece of my existence down there um, in comparison, again, to Boston um, was that people have a way of really just appreciating the beauty of life. And so, yes, yeah, let's sit in the car and let's like feel the texture of the seed. <laughs> and like, and if that means we spend more money on it, screw it. Like, <laughs> you know, but like that there's something to be gained. Yes. From just like pleasure and joy and the aesthetic value of things rather than, you know, pragmatism and practicality and efficiency. Um, And all of those things matter in marketing, right? Like all of those things are the sorts of things that, um, that you would have to think about when, if you're marketing something internationally, because those differences are huge. And, and I'm just giving one example of Rio, which is one city in a massive country of many subcultures. That is one country, you know, it's like the world is an incredibly diverse place. so. So for our words of wisdom segment, um, for somebody who does want to sell a product globally, um, and we'll, we'll go with a tangible product globally, you know, whether it's a, a cute little thing that they knitted that they're trying to sell on Etsy, or maybe it's a it's more of a international company or larger company that wants a global reach. Um, what would you recommend that they think about, or or even specifically that they have to do to ensure that they're successful in their in their goals? I think probably the the most essential thing would be to allow people on your side who are making decisions about marketing this product um, to reflect the culture and language of the people that you're trying to reach, that you're trying to sell to. Um, If you want this product to be successful, uh, we talked a lot about Latin America, but, you know, to continue in that vein, if you want this product to sell, right, 
in, you know, in Argentina, bring an Argentinian into the room, <laughs> right? Like someone who is from there, who knows the culture intimately, who speaks the language, and let that person make decisions, right? So this is something that I think has come up in our culture we're beginning to understand, the U.S. being a nation of immigrants, right? Like if you want to connect with an audience, the people making decisions about how to connect with that audience need to reflect that audience because we are all ignorant to our own biases to a certain extent. Like I can go live in Rio for a year. I am still blinded by the culture that I was raised in and the language that I was raised in. And that's why like I can speak fluent Portuguese and still never be as comfortable in Portuguese as I will always be in my native language because I will always like, I will always be blinded to a certain extent by like what I know most intimately. And so I think that's, that would be my word of wisdom is um, let the people who are making marketing decisions reflect the target audience. If you get a bunch of people from the United States who, you know, maybe have like traveled a little bit outside the States and maybe dabbled in other languages, making decisions about how to effectively market to different cultures, I think you're not likely to have much success. My guess, without knowing much about it, is that history is probably littered with, <laughs> with examples of companies that have tried to do that and not done well. So, so a little bit of market research. <laughs> yeah. In, in a way. Yeah, just talk to him. I know we were uh, having an episode with Larry Yu when we were talking about thought leadership. And one of the things he said, too, about like knowing your market and how to speak to them is talk to them. Bring them in and see about, you know, and just ask them and just see what's really going on here. You know, I want to understand because I, I want to not insult you. I want to be able to, you know, show you the benefit of what we provide. Mm -hmm. And so how can we do that? Mm -hmm. So talk to them. And even if you don't have someone, uh, you know, whether it's on Hangouts or something like that, you can easily just kind of ping and say, hey, can we chat? Even just, I would say, look at their news resources, you know, look at their news and what's going on in their world. Because we have uh, a couple clients actually where they have headquarters in India. Mm. And so, you know, we do a lot of social media work and we're always looking up different articles and what's kind of impacting the market, uh, impacting the market in India. And it's amazing what you learn and what you don't realize, because as you said, too, we're, we're so blinded and we have our own biases and we have our own thoughts on, well, this is what this country is like. This is what this this uh, specific region is experiencing. And we have no idea whatsoever. And we've come across a lot of different surprises just from looking at the news. Now, whether it's correct or incorrect, I mean, you have to be careful with that, of course, and where you're getting that information from. But honestly, it's amazing at, at what is actually important, how much you can learn just from doing your homework a bit more. Absolutely. And I think the more you diversify the group of people that are making decisions, I mean, that seems to be like that seems to be a fact of, of my life that I've witnessed over and over again. And having worked in different places, volunteered with different organizations, the more you can diversify in the broadest sense of the word, like really just bring in different people with different life experiences. Um, you know, in varying identities, the better off you are because those those blind spots get picked up by other people and filled in, right? And and I just that just seems so fundamentally true. And yet, for some reason, um, we, I guess, speaking to what I initially was saying, it's like we're resistant to it, right? We don't want to admit the humanness of people who seem very different from us, um, and so we create these walls. We want the people who are making decisions to be just like us and agree with us, um, and I think that is to the detriment. 
of companies that are trying to market internationally. Yeah, and you know, not to get political, you can cut it if you want, but, <laughs> but to the detriment of like groups of people who are trying to do good for the society at large. Like you must represent the society, truly represent them in order to do that effectively. Well, and I think too, you can find a lot of new ways of filling in people's wants that you didn't know existed before. And just by talking to that group, you can go, oh, we never actually thought about that, but this culture would use our product like this or our service in this way. And it becomes a whole new thing. Like for instance, Samsung here, Samsung known for TVs, cell phones and so forth, but they're one of the world's largest shipbuilders. You'd never wow. know that. But ship? Ship. Wow. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, P at the end of there, just for, <laughs> for people listening that I might not have uh, hit the P hard enough on that one. But yes, ship builders. And, and for instance, Honda, they're actually in China not really known for their cars. They're more known for, say, their motorcycles and things like that. Whereas here we think, oh, the Honda Civic or the Honda Accord, maybe even like a lawnmower perhaps, but that's really about it. Well, the Hondas get good gas mileage, so. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the gas mileage and the engine. Does it run? Yeah. So, well, thank you very much, Patrick, for coming onto our show and talking to us more and, and I guess really helping us broaden our, our, our viewpoints, you know, and, and what we really look at when it comes to marketing to other cultures and how we can expand out and hopefully bring along a more open mind as well as open heart when it comes to understanding these cultures and how we can really benefit them rather than just sell to them. So yeah. thank you for coming in. We, we really appreciate it. Of course. This was a, a lot of fun. I'll have to get you guys on Ponder On sometime. Absolutely. Look Definitely. forward to it. Right, well, thank you very much for listening today. There's more information on Patrick in the description below, so make sure to check that out. And if you love this episode, please share it with other people and check it out on our Facebook page as well, where you can also comment and talk about some of your favorite episodes and topics that you'd like to hear about in a future podcast. And also, of course, by subscribing and rating us, it really does help because it makes us so that way more people can come across the podcast. So please make sure to give us a couple stars here and there where you can, and also just subscribe so that way you can be the first notified when there's a brand new episode coming your way but until next time thank you once again for listening and have a great week